from all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no code. No contract, no If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, abortion rights are workers' rights. Your boss is stealing from you. Take it back. Conservative politicians continue their war against workers and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, what we're chatting about, what we're tweeting about, you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat, you can go to tvlr.fm. That's tvlr.fm. You can go to our shop, buy our hat, donate to us. Or you can go to patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport if you're more familiar and comfortable with that platform. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. You should get your local, your international, your regional, whatever, your state council, uh, your union's pack. You should tell them all to give us money. That's what, that's what we need. Um, I did you love that ad that played right before our show started of Phil Williams who's been running from a conversation with us for weeks now Adam did you hear that Oh yeah all about school choice Yeah that was that was uh that was great it's funny that he's willing to advertise and put a recording of himself in such proximity to us but he's not willing to actually himself come on and engage. That's, I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. I thought that was interesting. Um, but I'm awfully glad that we are here on this station this morning uh, providing you a little bit of alternative <laughs> to the rhetoric on school choice and how you should worship your boss and worship the police uh, and all the other things that they oh, like yeah. to talk about. 
Yeah, and we'll be getting into some of that school choice stuff, I'm sure, here uh, later in the show because uh, Adam is going to be giving us a breakdown on Casey Wardinsky, who is a former superintendent of Madison County Schools. Huntsville City Huntsville Schools. Schools um, while... Uh, while Adam was a teacher's union staffer. So that was, uh, he's got a lot of good stories. He's going to tell us all about that. But uh, first, let's let's go ahead and jump right into the first topic. Um, abortion rights are workers' rights. And this is something that we are not, we haven't talked a lot about. Um, but, you know, frankly, I think that, uh, I think that we need more white men talking about women's bodies. And so we're going to do that. Today. <laughs> um, that, we don't have enough about that. Wow. Uh, I just, so you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that it's, it's important that, you know, proper voices be heard about this subject. Um, no, but seriously, this is, this is, you know, we, we have the platform and, and so we're going to use it. We're not going to use it for a terribly long time but we do want to talk about it just shortly as because this is so topical um and we will dive deeper into it in the next couple of weeks i'm going to be reaching out to holler health justice they are a west virginia abortion fund and uh and women's advocacy group in west virginia uh, they are unionized with the industrial workers of the world. We'll be talking to one of those workers about this issue um, and how it affects workers in the coming weeks. But but we wanted to just give a just set our cards out on the table and and say and say clearly that abortion rights are workers' rights. And and because of the news that came out this week that we look to, which is not a surprise to anybody, or it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, that we are barreling towards a reversal of Roe versus Wade, that we are barreling towards a taking away of a constitutional right that women have had in this country for 50 years. Um, And so... Saying abortion rights are workers' rights, that may not be something that's intuitive to everybody. And I know that there are some folks that, you know, don't reckon that this is really in our wheelhouse. And I'm sure that there are even people in the House of Labor who are happy about the news from last week that will strip bodily autonomy from women, from working women and working folks across the country. I also know that if you're happy about this decision... Even the best argument, even an objectively correct argument about the importance of bodily autonomy, about how, about the tyranny of the state, and how you've got no business telling people that, like, there's nothing that I can say right now to convince you. And I'm aware of that. Um,. Because it's been beaten into your heads, if you believe this way, it's been beaten into your head for decades, likely, that for some reason, a fetus at the moment of conception has just as much, as much worth as a human adult, and thus, and, and, and this likely derives, you know, from some religious or spiritual belief. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not going to be able to deprogram a lifetime of religious indoctrination. Um, I want to plant some seeds for you, though. I, I, I would be, I would like you, I would encourage you, if you are anti-choice, if you, um, 
if you are happy about this. And it comes from a, a religious belief. I would urge you to consider the fact that in the Old Testament, the punishment for murder was death. An eye for an eye, right? That was the punishment for murder. The punishment for an injury to a woman that resulted in a miscarriage is a fine. If there was a biblical basis for life beginning at conception, then the punishment for an injury resulting in a miscarriage would justly be death. But that is not the prescription that the Bible puts out. I would also encourage you to consider the fact that the Old Testament prescribes abortion, prescribes abortion, prescri like this is the thing that the Bible tells people to do in the Old Testament in the case that a woman commits adultery. If a woman commits adultery in the Old Testament, the prescription is to induce abortion. A retort to that is going to be that the Bible says that before you were in the womb, I knew you. And this is something that has never made sense to me because all that is saying is that before you were a person, I knew you. There's another saying that says, uh, you know, something about like this happened before you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye. Does that mean that a, that life begins at twinkle in an eye? No, it's an expression. It's an expression saying that this happened before you were a being, before you were formed, before you were a soul if, in, in, in a religious sense. Also consider the fact that the, for the first hundred years of this country, abortion was largely unregulated in all states until what they called a fetal quickening, which is very similar to the uh, to what Roe versus Wade put out, which is that ab abortion is unrestricted in the first trimester. Fetal quickening is just when when a baby begins moving, when when the fetus begins moving inside of the womb. That's what that that was that was the history of this country at the founding and for a hundred years after it. Why do I want you to consider this, though? And look, I know that nothing that I've said has convinced you, but I do want you to think about it. I want you to think about it, and I want you to think about it hard. Because overturning Roe versus Wade will, at first, leave the decision of abortion up to the states. Although Republicans will certainly push for a national ban as soon as they get power. This whole state's rights is BS- they do not care about states' rights because, obviously, if they if you genuinely believe that abortion is murder, you're not going to be content with murder being outlawed in Alabama and murder continuing in California. As soon as you get federal power, you will try to outlaw it at the federal level. So let's not be coy. That's coming as soon as it can, as, as soon as they can get there. But it's going to be first left up to the states, which will mean that. Folks in Alabama are going to be forced by the state to carry a pregnancy to term. That will mean that women will lose their lives. That will mean folks who have a baby in Alabama will lose their income. 
they'll have to go through all the physical issues that go along with pregnancy. Pregnancy against their will. Against their will. Women will die. Women will be inflicted with serious injuries because Alabama has decided that it wants to use the power of the state to enforce the religious convictions of some of its citizens on all of its citizens. That is unacceptable. That is unacceptable. Alabama's abortion ban has no exceptions for rape or incest. That means... Folks in Alabama will be forced by the state to carry the pregnancy that is the result of rape to term. That is unacceptable. And now if you and it's it's ironic that this is coming from the institution of the Supreme Court, which is a counter majoritarian institution, a counter majoritarian institution is an, is it means that it is supposed to be it is its purpose is that it is a bulwark against the will of the majority. The purpose of counter majoritarian institutions is to protect us from, quote unquote, the tyranny of the majority. And that, and the majority of people in Alabama do believe that abortion should be illegal in all or most cases, unfortunately. So if the Supreme Court has any place at all, it would be to protect folks in Alabama from the tyranny of the majority who would have them forced by the state to carry out a pregnancy to term. To carry out what could be a life-threatening pregnancy to term. If the if if counter-majoritarian institutions have any role at all, it is to do that. But of course, the same people who are gonna laud this also laud counter-majoritarian institutions, but that only applies to taxes for rich people. This issue is, of course, a workers' issue because workers and their families are going to be the ones affected. Kim Kelly points out in a recent op-ed for In These Times that the United States is already a brutal place to be pregnant and a merciless one in which to raise a child. It's an even worse place to be a pregnant worker. The minimum wage is far too low, the rent is too damn high, and whatever remnants of a social safety net that working people were able to secure in recent decades have since frayed to tatters. Parental and infant mortality rates are deplorable, especially in Alabama, and are especially high for black and indigenous folks. We are living through a public health crisis, a housing crisis, a climate crisis, an economic inequality crisis, and a political crisis. Bringing a child into this world should be a choice, not in order. Workers who are forced to surrender their bodies via judicial mandate and deliver unwanted babies are not being protected, are not being respected at work or as people. They are not free. The Association of Flight Attendants President Sarah Nelson said in a statement, that not everybody will make the same choices, and that is fine. And AFA's members hold a wide range of personal beliefs on the topic of abortion. But the right for each of us to make our own choices about our jobs, 
our bodies, and our futures is fundamental. That includes the right to protect safe, legal options. Safe, legal options to anyone who wants to seek reproductive health care. As union members, we understand democracy in our workplaces and in our public square. Americans overwhelmingly, and this is true even if it's not the case in the state, Americans overwhelmingly support safe and legal abortion. This is not just a radical assault on our rights and settled law. It is an attack on the majority of this country and the ideals upon which it was founded. Unions still have power in this country, and we must use it to fight on this front of the class war that the ruling class has re-engaged. For its members, unions should immediately begin bargaining for abortion provisions in their health care plans, for travel allotments if they have to go out of state, across state lines for abortion. And we should do this because the ideas that some religious folks, some, not all, the ideas that some religious people have in their heads should not dictate what workers do with their bodies, and they should not be allowed to force a worker to carry a pregnancy to term. It is none of their damn business. Amen. And that's that. That's that. We are going to, um, and like I said, we're going to talk some more about it next week with workers from Holler Health Justice um, and about how this is going to affect workers. Uh, But but it, I, I did think it was important for us to address this um, today as, as the news came out. So really quickly before we go to, um, before we go to a break, we're going to play a part of an interview that we did with the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division locally. These are local people that work for the Department of Labor in the Wage and Hour Division about, uh, we talked to them about wage theft, about minimum wage laws, about overtime laws and stuff like that. This is 10 minutes of a 40-minute interview. So if you want to hear the rest of the conversation, you're going to have to uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. But for now, Adam, let's go ahead and play that part of the conversation. All right, so our next guests are going to be from the Department of Labor, the Wage and Hour Division. We have Christina Coleman Lovelace. She is more or less the uh, the uh, outreach and you know public uh, uh, public relations kind of person for the DOL Wage and Hour Division. And Lindsay Arnold is the investigator for the DOL Wage and Hour Division in Huntsville. Um, and we wanted to bring them on because most people have kind of a broad understanding of, hey, I'm supposed to be making at least $7.25 an hour. If I'm not a server, if, if I'm a server, I should be making at least $2 an hour, uh, $2.13 an hour. And, uh, and, and I should have, there are some overtime protections that I'm vaguely aware of, right? These are, these are things that people have vague notions of like, these are protected rights that I have in the law. But I don't think, even for myself, most people have a good understanding of actually what the law is and, actually how to make sure it's enforced. We're a union talk radio show, and so one of our first things is uh, is that you should do a union about it and enforce it yourself. And that's, you know, that that is a, a tried and true method of 
getting higher wages, better benefits, overtime protections, things like that. But let's say you don't have a union or let's say you don't want to wait for a campaign and, uh, you know, you feel like your your rights are being violated now. Uh, what can you do about it? So we wanted to talk to them about it. Christina, Lindsay, thank you very much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Christina, tell us what the law is specifically as it relates to wage and hour. What are the things that workers in America, workers in Alabama, ought to expect when they work for an employer? Well, um, we are the wage and hour division. And um, one of the most broadest applications governing um, that particular act, of course, is the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that's governing minimum wage, overtime pay, youth employment. Outside of the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, we also um, pretty much enforce the Family Medical Leave Act, known as FMLA. We enforce the Migrant Seasonal Agriculture Worker Protection Act. Um, believe it or not, a lot of people don't know this, but we actually enforce the Employee Polygraph Act and the Wage Garnishment Provisions Act, as well as the Davis-Bacon and related acts, the um, McNahara, um, the McNahara and O'Hara Service Contract Act, and of course the Temporary Worker and Provisions Act. So there's acts that we actually enforce, but one of the biggest, most common acts that we actually enforce is that minimum wage at that $7.25 an hour. Right now, that is the federal minimum wage. We have a lot of states that actually um, pay their employees more than that $7.25. But for the state of Alabama and every other state within the United States of America, we're just stating that that $7.25 is at the federal minimum wage. If a state decides to pay $10 an hour or like California, $12 or $13 or D.C. at $15, that's at the state minimum wage. We're just saying that you can't go below that $7.25. Right, right. And, the, and, and so then the states would be up. It would be their job to enforce the state minimum wage. Y'all are just going to be making sure that, you know, uh, People across the country are paying at least seven twenty-five, and I think, especially in this economy, um, you hear a minimum wage of seven dollars twenty-five cents an hour, and it is difficult, I think, for a lot of people to understand that this is actually an issue, and that that uh, that 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 law, the seven twenty-five law, actually does get violated. Still, can you talk to us about? about that 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 yes <laughs> people do still pay the minimum wage or below it yes they do i mean Lindsay can probably speak to you about that more but not only that jacob we have it set at 725 per hour and i think that's been effective since 2009 and a lot of trainings that i do i have to let them know that that's cash or equivalent and that's free and clear which means that you have to pay them in cash you cannot pay them um at seven or six dollars with a coupon and six dollars in cash and you know a dollar 25 with a coupon to equal to the 725 there has been cases where people have actually paid someone six dollars and would give them the dollar and 25 cents for a meal or something of that nature so we're one of the ones that just our investigators such as Lindsay, are one of the main ones that make sure that we enforce that 725 an hour. We make sure that we let all employees know 
that doesn't speak for tipped credit or for, or for tipped employees, because we do have those employees that you mentioned earlier that are paid federal law two thirteen an hour. But you have to say that you at least have, I think, made tips of at least five twelve an hour to equal the seven twenty five an hour. So mm-hmm. you sometimes have a tipped credit where the manager or supervisor is basically stating that that employer is going to guarantee that they make that five thirteen or five twelve an hour in tips. If they don't, they have to pay them that amount in tips to equal the seven twenty five. So the mm-hmm. two thirteen, which is low for a tipped employee. Plus the 512 makes the 725 an hour. So we spend a lot of time myself educating and training a lot of companies on the laws that we enforce as it pertains to FLSA, as it pertains to FMLA. But one of the major components of the acts that we basically see a lot of violations in is the FLSA, which includes minimum wage, overtime. We see a lot of overtime issues and even record keeping. Let's talk about overtime then. How who is actually eligible for overtime? Because I know that salaried employees, for some reason, are able to companies are able to get around the. My understanding is that they can get around the overtime law and not have to pay overtime if the employee is salary. Um, and and so how how do you as an employee know whether or not you are entitled to overtime, which is time and a half after forty hours? Okay, so so. Actually, in order to be um, exempt from overtime, it's actually a, a, a two-pronged test. You have to make a salary um, that remains the same regardless of your hour of work. Um, and starting January 1st of 2020, that salary amount increased from $455 a week to $684 a week. Um, and again, that is... Um, remains the same regardless if you work 50 hours, 80 hours, 20 hours, that that salary has to remain the same. And then the second part of the test to um, be exempt from overtime is a duties test. So either, um, and there's, you know, five or six different ones, but essentially um, if you are a supervisor, meaning you um, supervise two or more full-time employees, you hire, fire, you schedule, discipline, train, um, that would be a du- one of the duties um, in which you would be, uh, you know, that would meet that exemption part or the duty part of that, that exemption test. Um, another one is like a, there's computer. Um, you're actually like a programmer. You're not an IT person. You, you're actually writing code, something like that. There's a couple little, you know, differences with that particular computer exemption. We have professional exemptions for lawyers, doctors, teachers. Um, we have... Um, administrative exemption, which covers um, employees that make make decisions that um, mm-hmm. affect the financial, you know, outlook of the company. These, you know, they're not, you know, um, actual an administrative assistant is normally not going to qualify um, under that p- particular duties test. But um, administrative um, exemption is someone who is, you know, uh, entering into contracts of a million dollars or buying stuff for the company with, you know, with the company credit card without approval from, you know, the big boss for a hundred thousand dollars here or there. Those are the type of, um, you know, people that really do affect the the financial, um, you know, outlook of the company. So those are some of the the, the ways to be exempt from overtime. So it's not just that salary, it's also a duties, um, 
you know, part of um, in order to be exempt from overtime. How do I, as a worker, go about enforcing this? If I feel like if I'm if I'm listening to this and I say, I don't think that my position actually qualifies for the overtime position or, or for the overtime exemption or I'm thinking um, that that I'm not actually being paid seven twenty five or, or they're giving me six dollars in a coupon or, or, or something like this. How do I go about ensuring that this is enforced? Well, actually, you'll reach out to our offices. We have an office in Huntsville, Montgomery, Mobile and Birmingham. So if you have any indication that you feel that your rights have been violated, where you're not being paid the $7.25 an hour, where you feel that you're not being paid overtime at anything over 40 hours in a work week, um, you'll reach out to one of our offices. You'll come, you can either walk in, you can call us. We have people on staff from, I think it's 8 o'clock a.m. until 5 o'clock p.m. So feel free to contact us. Visit our website. Feel free to visit our website at www.dol.gov backslash WHD. And you can find any one of our offices throughout the country and our contact information to reach out to us. And you'll have someone what we call a wage and hour technician who will take your complaint. They'll make sure that they can forward it on to an investigator. They'll review the information and see if there has been one of your rights that have been violated. All right. So there you go. That was our conversation with some local Department of Labor, Wage, and Hour Division folks. Uh, if you feel like you fall under any of those categories where your rights have been violated, uh, follow their instructions and call 205-536-8570. That is 205-536-8570. Uh, and definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel because the rest of the conversation has some really good information, like about how they protect workers from retaliation, how they are able to keep the identities of the workers um, secure. And they talked about a case where they were able to secure $184,000 for workers in five restaurants across the South. It's like It was like a regional chain. Um, and they talked about that and, and getting that money back for the workers. So that was uh, so really cool stuff, really cool stuff that they did. Um, and that interview will be coming out on our YouTube channel in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to take a break really quick. Don't go anywhere, though. We've got some good stuff on the other side. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. 
With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, and my co-host is Adam Keller. Uh, if you've got anything to add, you can always give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Um, <clears throat> so I've got, I've got a question for you, Adam. Um, were you born before 2020? Yes, actually, I was. You were. What about, a little were, bit. Were you before before? Uh, were you born before twenty eighteen? Yes, actually, uh, I was. Okay, that's probably right. I guess I would. That would be kind of what I would guess. That would be what I would guess. But um, because both of us were alive and adults, actually, we were both adults uh, in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty. Um, we remember those elections, right? I remember those elections. Are is our audio going out on no audio? Still no audio from on the YouTube and the Facebook. All right, that should be fixed now. Again, I apologize. This morning we're just having some some technical glitches here on our settings, but uh, hopefully you guys can hear us now. Okay, yeah. Let us know in. 
the chat if you can hear us good uh good now um good we could hear ads and the music but no audio from youtube hmm, that's weird but now you hear us presumably i guess i appreciate the feedback that helps yeah, absolutely us. um there you go all right thanks guys so yeah um well i just asked i you know uh i just asked adam if he was born before 2020 and 2018 and he confirmed that he was and and i and uh we also both confirmed that we were both born um at such a time that we were adults in 2018 and 2020, actually. And so because both of us were live and both of us were adults at that time, um, then we remember those elections. We remember those elections, and we remember those elections for Congress. And in 2018 and 2020, Mo Brooks ran for re-election, and in both of those elections, he had an opponent. In 2018, he had a primary opponent, Clayton Henchman, who wanted to debate him. He told WHNT at the time, Mo Brooks did, that uh, it was declining to comment at this time on any of Henchman's comments, whether they be false negative attacks or debate offers. Right? And this is a, you know, this is, Henchman is another Republican. Um, and <laughs> they ultimately did not debate. That was the, that was the outcome of that. He also had a general election opponent in that year who wanted a debate, Peter Joffreyan. Peter Joffreyan wanted to debate Mo Brooks during the general election, and Mo Brooks told AL.com that we will mull Mr. Joffreyan's request over, but at this time, we are not inclined to give a platform to a campaign that has repeatedly engaged in dishonest campaign tactics. They ultimately did not debate. In 2020, he had a primary candidate who was endorsed by several Alabama Republican Party leaders, who was Chris Lewis, and Mo Brooks did not debate him either. So we've got a pattern here of Mo Brooks refusing to debate, and each time trotting out the line, basically, that he did not want to legitimize false attacks. Well, it's interesting then that Mo Brooks... Last week, put out an op-ed in the same media project that brought you the fluff interview with the flat-earth pro-military coup gubernatorial candidate, lambasting his primary opponents for refusing to acquiesce to his incessant, incessant debate offers. He even cites as a reason for wanting to debate, he wants to correct their false attacks on him. Hmm. That's interesting, because last time he didn't want to platform them, but now he wants to attack them for his... So, uh, that's definitely a reversal. But, you know, I mean, look, that's that's all politics. I just thought it was funny. Not going to spend a lot of time on that. But it's all politics. He wants debates when he reckons it'll help him politically and doesn't when they won't. You know, whatever. But what irked me was the last bit of his op-ed where he spoke loftily about the virtues of public debate, saying essentially that anything less than his opponents conceding to his demand to a debate is a disservice to the public. That a candidate, quote, a candidate who is afraid of the public has no business in serving, has no business serving in public life. Yeah. I mean, now here's the thing. I agree. Right. I I agree with him. I agree with Mo Brooks. Clip that if you want. <laughs> I agree with Mo Brooks that his opponents should debate him. Because I also think, I, but I legitimately believe this, Mo Brooks is just lying 
Mo Brooks is just lying and saying whatever he feels like he needs to. That's what's happening there. Probably because he's losing. Because he's losing. Sucks to be a loser. Because he's really, his feelings are hurt that he's losing and no one cares about him anymore. And so he's crying about it. And and now he's he's trotting out all this all this you know chest thumping like public value virtue of you know the light of day and all this stuff. But to be willing to put pen to paper, as it were, with those words after your record of refusing to engage with political opponents is just amazing. But you know that's what politicians do; they lie. So. Uh, speaking of lying politicians, we've, we've, we've we have got another a, one. We've got another one. Is that right? We've got more than one lying politicians in North Alabama. It would seem. It would yeah. seem that way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you want Adam, me to talk about one of them? Yeah. Yeah. Adam, tell us about. Tell us about Casey Wardinsky. All right, y'all. Well, buckle up. We're going for a ride. Uh, doing a little bit of deep dive here on Casey Wardinsky who is a Republican candidate for Alabama's 5th Congressional District, which many of our listeners know includes Huntsville and most of North Alabama. And it is currently held by that guy, Mo Brooks, we were just talking about. So the story of Casey Wardinsky tells us a lot about corporate education reform, Huntsville politics, and the ways that big money interests shape our public institutions and harm the working class. Wardinsky is a retired Army colonel. And he was appointed as assistant secretary of the Army for the last two years of the Trump administration. And he was superintendent of Huntsville City Schools from 2011 to 2016. And it's his role as superintendent that I'm most familiar with as I taught in Huntsville during his administration. And for the last 15 months or so of his regime, I was a field staffer for the Alabama Education Association, serving as an official representative of Huntsville educators. And I'm disclosing that up front, both so you know my bias and so you know my personal role in this story. Now, Wardinsky did work at West Point for part of his stint in the Army, but his biggest claim to fame was probably his leading role on America's Army. America's Army was a video game designed and distributed by the Army as a recruitment tool. This may be a little bit before your time, Jacob, but I remember it quite well. Uh, This was in the 2000s, during the height of the wars in the Middle East, and the Army was looking for new and creative ways to convince young men to travel halfway across the globe to kill and be killed for a series of ever-changing justifications. It was America's Army that really got military recruiters enmeshed in the world of video games, and that presence has since grown in the years, over the years, to encompass so-called esports teams, Twitch streaming, and more. It was also a new method of targeting boys before they were old enough to enlist with the goal of grooming them as future recruits while, of course, harvesting their data. Given the dominance of the military-industrial complex in Huntsville and America generally, suppose it shouldn't be much of a surprise that this is the kind of guy some folks wanted in charge of public education. Now, after retiring from the Army, Wardinsky spent a year as CFO of Aurora Public Schools in Colorado, Even more importantly, though, in his transition into education from the military was his attendance at the Broad Academy. The brainchild of billionaire Eli Broad, his academy was like a boot camp for aspiring school system superintendents coming from private industry as well as the military. While most aspiring educators learn about 
pedagogy and child development and classroom management. The graduates of the Broad Academy were well versed in how to go after teachers' unions, consolidate schools, privatize services, and manipulate data. Google the Broad virus, and you'll see some of the notorious graduates of this program who went on to wreak havoc on public schools from Seattle to Chicago to D.C. to all the way down here in Alabama. And let's take a step back and remember the context. We had the Great Recession in 2008, which was followed by austerity at the national and state levels. Public education and its largely unionized female workforce was already under the crosshairs, and the economic crisis accelerated the forces of corporate education reform and privatization in both political parties. In the few years that followed the crash, Alabama had some of the deepest budget cuts in the nation. The legislature weakened tenure rights, restricted payroll dues deduction, created a second tier for the state pension, legalized charter schools, set up a quote-unquote failing schools list, raised benefit costs, and established a private school scholarship fund through the Alabama Accountability Act. That was all within five years or so of the Great Recession. Meanwhile, teachers and public sector workers in general were political punching bags, with them being blamed for society's ills and the subject of severe efforts to stoke resentment and division among the working class. And it was in this context that Huntsville City Schools was experiencing its own financial crisis. As with many school districts at the time, Huntsville was looking at a gaping hole in the budget. The district's first African-American superintendent, Dr. Anroy Moore, was facing political backlash over not just the budget, but the general direction of the district. Ultimately, the school district was subjected to a brief state intervention under Ed Richardson to supposedly clean things up, which naturally meant a reduction in force, also known as layoffs, which had a particular impact, in this case, on special education aides. The people who are some of our most vulnerable, uh, who are helping some of our most vulnerable students. Meanwhile, the school district was still subject to a desegregation order, Hereford versus Huntsville Board of Education, that dated back to 1970, an order impacting issues including zoning lines and the construction of new schools. Now, just as privatizers targeted New Orleans public schools post-Katrina, the crisis in Huntsville made it a prime target. Enter Casey Wardinsky. Despite no experience as a superintendent or even as a public school teacher, the political and business establishment town supported Wardinsky as a figure who could shake up the school district, which was perceived as overspending and inefficient. Now, if you go to his website, Wardinsky brags about allegedly turning a $19 million deficit into a surplus of more than $30 million. How this was supposedly accomplished has never been fully explained and frankly deserves journalistic invest investigation. But Ed Richardson and the state intervention claimed they were the ones who erased that deficit, a full three months before Wardinsky even took office. Regardless of who claims credit and how exactly those finances were improved, Wardinsky undertook a spending spree on new school buildings, laptops for every student with a slew of new tech software and programs, central office bureaucracy, lawyers, and numerous contracts that funneled public dollars into private hands all while teachers remained on the state minimum salary. Wardinsky brags about reducing the number of, quote, failing schools, 
But he leaves out how much of that success was from simply closing, consolidating, and renaming schools across the district. Turns out that's an easy way to game the numbers. A school can't be failing if it's been closed. There have been many questions raised in the years since, all of his real estate willing and dealing. Folks like current school board member Michelle Watkins have specifically questioned the deals involving the old Johnson and Grissom high schools, asking why the school district appeared to sell property to the city of Huntsville for millions of dollars below appraisal value. Allegedly, this was to compensate the city for new infrastructure required to go along with the new Grissom High at its new location. A new school that, by the way, was at or over capacity the day it opened. Now, why spend millions on a new school that was built to be overcrowded? Was it more handouts to contractors, imposed limits on minority student transfers, simple incompetence? It's really it's hard to say, but that was par for the course for his administration. Now, most notoriously, Rodinsky's administration was viciously anti-teacher and anti-employee. Rodinsky imposed his vision of lean production that we've seen all across the public sector and private industry. And as an aside, Jacob interviewed uh, one of our retirees, Joe Marshall, uh, recently on Overtime, where he talked about redesign team concepts at the paper mill. And there are really a lot of parallels uh, between what happened in private industry to have a leaner workforce and the type of corporate education reform we've seen from folks like Casey Rodinsky. In this case, veteran teachers were chased out, and high turnover was actually seen as a positive. And it worked, too, with Rodinsky's policies leading to one of the highest teacher turnover rates in the entire state of Alabama. Huntsville was a city that literally could put a man on the moon, but couldn't keep a teacher in a classroom. Employees faced both implicit and explicit threats against speaking up, Forced transfers were weaponized. The board's policy manual was completely rewritten to the benefit of management and to the detriment of employees and the public. And the entire culture of the district was reshaped by a top-down, authoritarian, and bullying management style. Huntsville City Schools became ground zero for corporate reform and privatization in Alabama. By the end of his tenure, hundreds of support staff jobs were outsourced to temp agencies impacting security guards, custodians, cafeteria workers, special education aides, maintenance, and IT. Appleton, a for-profit vendor which has since been rebranded as Spur, took over the after-school services initially and then expanded into a variety of support services. A group called Lean Frog was brought in to do, well, the HR department's job, while also providing recommendations on how to have a leaner workforce. And in what became the most controversial move, the alternative school was contracted out to a private company named Pinnacle. More on that later. Rodinsky's administration had horrible relations with the community and was frequently combative with the press. School board meetings became multi-hour marathons of the superintendent and his cronies doing PR, while the board members nodded along and any members of the public who dared to ask questions or push back publicly were treated with contempt, if not security escorts. On this front, the district spent hundreds of thousands on a well-known local political consultant named David Driscoll to do additional PR on top of the multiple six-figure central office jobs already assigned to PR and community relations. 
Conveniently, Driscoll was also working for the campaigns of various school board members at the same time. Now, when did his contractual work for the district end and his political work for candidates begin? We'll probably never know. Some will now give credit to Wardinsky for pursuing a joint consent order with the Department of Justice and federal courts to finally address that long-standing desegregation case. But that leaves out the ways his administration entered negotiations with the Justice Department and federal courts in bad faith. The times he was admonished by Judge Heikkila and the reality that his initial zoning plan was segregationist on its face. So while it is ultimately a good thing that the school district now has a path to so-called unitary status, it could never live up to the spirit of the agreement when the school's leadership specialized in disunity and had by that point alienated numerous communities and constituencies. I would argue that the consent order was further sabotaged by the Wardinsky administration's weaponization of forced employee transfers and the widespread message coming from central office that virtually any problems you could identify, like fudging the discipline numbers, was really the fault of the DOJ and the consent order. Our, ta- our story, though, takes an inspirational turn whenever we look at the broad coalition of folks who fought back. Early pushback came from the predominantly black sections of North Huntsville, including ministers and elected officials like the late County Commissioner Bob Harrison, Activists such as Russell Wynn and Terry Michael and Jane Deneef fought to expose what was really happening and keep the public informed. By 2016, there was broad discontent among students, parents, educators, and neighborhoods across the city. Community meetings started popping up all over Huntsville. Parents organized groups like Huntsville United. School board meetings were packed. Through my role as a labor leader, I pursued change by whatever means were possible, because frankly... Good faith negotiations weren't one of those means possible. Uh, That included everything from regular media presence, frequent records requests, a major lawsuit we filed over Wardinsky's teacher evaluations and his secret notebooks of alleged ineffective educators, and of course, some good old-fashioned community organizing. Here in Huntsville, in opposition to the harmful leadership of Casey Wardinsky, We built a grassroots movement that united regular working-class folks across racial and neighborhood lines to challenge one of the state's most powerful superintendents, backed by virtually the entire city establishment. This movement helped elect two strong women and former educators, Pam Hill and Michelle Watkins, to the two school board seats up for election in August 2016. That includes Watkins winning in a landslide against the incumbent school board president and Wardinsky ally. That also includes Hill winning against the Wardinsky ally in District 5, in spite of a collaboration between Wardinsky, Appleton CEO, and local right-wing shock jock Dale Jackson to manufacture controversy at the 11th hour before the election. The victory came despite the big money behind Wardinsky's allied board candidates, some of this money coming from the very same contractors doing business with the school district. Surprise, surprise. The election of two Wardinsky opponents, while not giving us a majority on the board, did represent a public repudiation of his administration and the promise of getting some real accountability and oversight after years of the school board unanimously supporting every single one of his measures. In September 2016, just a couple weeks after the election, Casey Wardinsky announced a hastily assembled press conference 
where we were treated with a couple of bombshells. Wardinsky announced he was resigning with less than 48 hours notice. A perk, by the way, that teachers don't get to enjoy. But the real kicker was his disclosure of a romantic relationship with Karen Lee, the CEO of Pinnacle. Yes, the same company that took over the district's alternative school and was paid millions in public tax dollars. And it just so happens a large invoice from Pinnacle was slated for that week's school board meeting. Of course, I've heard plenty of rumors about just when that relationship between Lee and Wardinsky began. But ultimately, the business relationship between Huntsville City Schools and Pinnacle and its conclusion ended up in the courts. Meanwhile, the pro-Wardinsky majority on the school board quickly moved to restrict citizen comments and questions at board meetings in the aftermath of his scandalous exit and the people power they witnessed. That same faction would later attempt unsuccessfully to formally censure board member Pam Hill. The large-scale privatization of support services has yet to be rolled back. Wardinsky's last CFO, Jason Taylor, would resign a few months later amid his own conflict of interest questions. And it was in the first budget post-Wardinsky where the other shoe dropped, and we discovered yet another budget crisis. The district has since shuffled through multiple CFOs and superintendents, and it's my assessment that Huntsville City Schools has yet to recover from the damage done, especially when it comes to the working conditions of educators and the learning conditions of students. Meanwhile, Casey has gone on to uh, have a successful career for something called Fish Strategies uh, before his appointment by the Trump administration. And he's now successfully rebranded himself as an America first Trump acolyte, uh, which I find personally amusing because I remember him coming in here years ago as a Yankee, tough Yankee outsider who was going to tell us yokels how to shape up. Now he's apparently one of us yokels, uh, at least among the more reactionary crowd. So that's the story of, of Casey Wardinsky and the damage he has done to Huntsville. I remember many a one-on-one conversations with the man. I remember many uh, heated school board meetings with the man. I remember him personally telling me that support workers don't deserve due process rights. He shouldn't even have to go through a person like me, a labor organizer, to get rid of him. And now I see his appeals, uh, his, his fake populist appeals to the voters of Alabama. And I, if you take nothing else away from this story, I want you to hear me when I say from the bottom of my heart that I believe Casey Wardinsky to be anti-worker, anti-working class, anti-teacher, anti-public. The man uh, truly has a specialty in funneling public tax dollars into private interest. If that's what you're for, then I encourage you to vote for him. But if you truly stand for the working class of Alabama and for the stewardship of our public institutions, his anti-worker sentiment alone should be enough to earn your opposition. Yeah, that was that was fantastic. Um, thank you for that. Uh, that's there's so much. I mean, there's just so much there that I think folks. Well, obviously, folks aren't. Um, you know, folks aren't going to. Uh, 
<laughs> folks aren't going to hear that on the radio. Yeah, so, that's uh, or I on, mean, on other stations, right? Or and, on other shows. And, and I got to say, it was very difficult for me to come up with this uh, at, as short as it was. And I know that sounded quite long-winded, probably to some of you. Uh, but it was tough for me to to put it, um, you know, in a more bite-sized format. As you said, there's a lot to dig in there. There's a lot. There's a lot of kind of uh, skimmed over. And you know, if there's specific questions or anything that that folks are interested in, you know, send them our way. I'd, I'd love to talk about it. But you know, I, I've seen his signs start to pop up. I've seen his commercials start to pop up, and and I felt it was important because I've seen the way in which. Wealthy, powerful interests locally have kind of rewritten history, mm-hmm. the local history here. Uh, and unless you were one of these handful of activists like myself who were really in the trenches during this time, it's pretty easy to be misled. Yeah. And so I felt it was important to put this on the record. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Adam is getting lots of uh, lots of kudos in the chats. Um, and and Jeb said that. uh, uh he has no idea how how deep his anti worker sentiment went, um, and that ain't on his ads. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <clears throat> that that's definitely true. He's he's not going to put that on the ad. So um, and, and Travis asked if this is an article that's going to be linked, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna put that up as an article on the site. Um, yeah, we will as well. Travis appreciate so the feedback for, yeah, as well. Thanks for the feedback. Um, and all and as always, uh, if you want to. Give the show a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-TV8857. So we are going to take a break here in just a second. But first, let's go through really quick with... um, Let's go through really quick some uh, some local union news. Uh, Last week, we told you that the machinist union in Decatur may not have to strike, and we were right. That's very, very good. Um, In what then-president of the machinist union, Local Lodge 44, said was the best contract he had seen come back from negotiations, workers secured an array of gains, including a ratification bonus of $6,000, minimum and maximum wage gains, so they have a top-out rate. Now of fifty five dollars an hour, I believe, where it was before, like forty eight, something like that. In each year of the three year contract, there are general wage increases of four thousand dollars, four percent of three point five percent, and then three percent. In the three years, there is a cola of four thousand dollars over the year, one point four thousand dollars, and then another one point four thousand dollars. There is a progression. Of in the first year a dollar twenty an hour, and then a dollar an hour, and then a dollar an hour in the third year. There's increased four hundred one k contributions. There's improved short term disability with the company now paying half the premium instead of the worker. No concessions on health care. This is a really good contract, and I think by the time you add the progression, the cola, and the general wage increases, at least for the first year, a lot of workers are looking at over a 10% raise immediately going back to work. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, and, and then on top of that, they get the $6,000 ratification bonus. Um, so really, really great job. Um, and that's uh, they went on strike in 2018, and that's you know some of the things that you get if you show the boss that you mean business. Uh, from a statement 
from the International Union on Contract Ratification, which passed overwhelmingly, ULA machinists are the hardworking men and women who ensure that America's launch capability remains second to none by not only manufacturing, but launching some of the best and safest rockets in the world, said International Association of Machinists International President Robert Martinez Jr. They deserve a contract that acknowledges the decades of skill and expertise they bring to the job. I am proud to say that's what we were able to bring home to the membership by standing in solidarity and being prepared for the bargaining table. So, hats off to them. Congratulations. Really happy for y'all. Um, and And... You know, look forward to uh, uh, continuing to work with Machinist Local 44 in the future. So we've had a great show so far. We've been talking to the local Department of Labor, Wage and Hour folks, about how to get your money back if your boss is stealing from you. Absolutely destroyed Casey Wardinsky. If you missed any of it, we are on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We are wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the full show there or catch clips that might interest you. Just search for the Valley Labor Report. We are going to take a break really quick. And when we come back, we're talking about some conservative political folks not being very pro-worker. This is kind of a theme of the show. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. 
Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, feel free to give us a call. The phone on the phone line is open. The number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And if you listen to the program as a podcast, you can leave us a voicemail at the same number. So <clears throat> I am constantly, constantly being told that it's it's like being put in my face all the time that the Republican Party, the Republican Party and its mouthpieces are the new representatives of the working class. One of the ways that they bolstered this reputation back in the day, back in 2020, uh, was by attacking Bill Maher, not wrongfully, for saying he wanted a recession, right? I mean, you remember that. That was like a whole big thing, right, Adam? Yeah, Bill Maher sucks. So, yeah. like, if if yeah, they want to attack him, by all means, go for it. But that was like I don't me- well, maybe maybe you didn't maybe maybe it didn't cross your radar because you don't listen to as much trash as I do. But it was like <laughs> it. I mean, I was hearing that on so many right wing talk shows. All that it was like months of Bill Maher wants you to be poor. Months of it. Um which is true and which is bad. He said something basically to the effect of like, I hope we get a recession so that we can vote Trump out of office, which is... Wow. Yeah, which which was... That was really bad. That was really bad and... Yeah. Uh, hot take. That sucks. Yeah. So does he for saying Screw that. Bill Maher. Um, but uh, 
here's some interesting here's an interesting juxtaposition i'll just let you uh i'll just let folks listen to it without a press preface uh adam let's play that charlie kirk clip yes i do believe that we are heading towards a recession i don't want that i pray that does not happen I pray for all of you that will be losing your job. So what you're going to see, what you're going to see is that these companies that have just hired dramatically are then going to have to scale down. For those of you that are employers and have to deal with kind of the smug, snarky attitude of people that are showing up late and you're like, I got no leverage because I can't find anyone to work. The only benefit of a recession, which is hard to even believe there would be one, the only benefit is that employers are now going to kind of get some of their leverage back because everyone's going to be begging for a job soon. Everyone. So you go from like, where are all the workers because they have all the leverage to the workers will be pounding down your door for a job. Charlie Kirk, we'll be right back. I mean, Jesus wow. Christ, man. That's in, like, this is the guy, right, that is a working class hero. And at least, I mean, this is not a, like a defense of Bill Maher, but at least in Bill Maher's case, the... Working people being hurt is the downside of the recession, right? <laughs> right? Like like in Bill Maher's fantasy, like there's a recession and then Trump gets kicked out of office, but it's bad that poor people have to be hurt in the meantime, right? That's I mean, we can at least say that or we can at least say that he doesn't he doesn't care. It's neither it is neither um bad nor good. It's just something that has to happen to get Trump out of office, okay? Like that's But for Charlie Kirk you listener with a job, you listener with a job being broken down to the point where you have to crawl on your knees back to your job, pounding down the door. That's the good thing for him. That's the benefit of a recession for this guy. It's very revealing of, of who they identify with and who they don't. And And yeah, if you're listening to that and you're someone who actually works for a living you actually have to work for someone else as the vast majority of us do obviously they're not speaking to us they don't they don't want our support it's very obvious i mean that's serious like seriously folks like listening to this i know that just by the numbers the majority of people that listen to this show even if you're conservative like you work you know, you're not <laughs> you're just 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 by virtue of the way that our society is structured. You're not an owner listening to this. Probably, probably you listener are not an owner. You are not a boss. You are a worker. The benefit to Charlie Kirk. In his mind, the benefit of a recession is that your life is made worse to give more leverage to the boss. That's the benefit. That's the thing that he thinks is redeemable about a recession. But in his defense, he will pray for you. That's true. So. They they are obsessed with making it easier to fire people. Yeah. I mean, and that's a common theme throughout today's show as well. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. was obviously a common theme within uh, Casey Wardinsky and his regime in Huntsville City. Uh, you see it with these comments being made by Charlie Kirk and also by, you know, most of right-wing media, when they talk this way, a lot of it boils down to more power for your boss, less power for you, yep. more power for that boss to be able to fire you. Uh, and, you know, not that we need reminding, but we've got to sell our labor in order to eat 
in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't have a guaranteed income. We don't have a guaranteed job. I know we have right to work laws, That's but right. that doesn't mean you actually have a right to work. <laughs> um, so right. making and, it and, easier and, and, to fire and, you means making it easier to put you and your entire household in turmoil uh, and possibly catastrophe. And the fetishization of business owners is nonsense. Because the idea that they that they put forward is that oh they put they they take risks. They take risks. What is the risk? I want you to actually legitimately think about what is the risk for a business owner if his business falls through. What is the risk? Because the way that our society is structured, if you create a corporation, you're not liable personally for the debts. So if something happens and your business doesn't do well, you're not going to be personally liable for any debts that your business takes on. Um, What happens if your business falls through? Oh, you either get to sit on all of the money that you have previously stolen from workers who made the business run to the extent that it did, or you have to become a worker. That is the risk that bosses take. And that's assuming you're not just straight up bailed out yeah. with uh, you know, low interest or zero interest loans, which has honestly been a common practice here in this country for quite some time now. And I get there may be someone listening who has small business background, uh, you know, maybe you've owned a small business before. Well, guess what? They're not for you either. Right. These rules are not made for your benefit. Uh, so, it, you oh. know, I think that's I, I think you're onto something there. The whole risk that's taken. Yeah. Uh, think about the risk that we all take every day when we go to work. Yeah. Yeah, the entirety of the risk can, that 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 comes to a boss by virtue of creating a business is that one day they might have to be a worker. That is the <laughs> right. worst outcome that can befall a boss. As a matter of fact, the worst thing that can happen to them is that they have to sell their labor. Like the rest of us. Like the rest of us. Like the rest of us. So last week was replete with examples of folks who want to fashion themselves as warriors for the working class letting the mask slip. Another example was Lindsey Graham. Last week, the U.S. Senate Budget Committee held a hearing on Amazon's violation of labor law, and the purpose was basically to establish a basis for the necessity of a law that would prohibit union busters from accessing federal dollars. Here is how warrior, uh, uh, warrior for the working class Republican Lindsey Graham began his remarks after an introduction from Bernie Sanders. In my view, however, the time for talk is over. The time for action is now. Taxpayer dollars should not go to companies like Amazon who repeatedly break the law. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars in contracts. No government, not the federal government, not the state government, and not any city government should be handing out corporate welfare to union busters and labor law violators. Senator Graham. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I really enjoyed working with you, but wow. (laughs) This committee is uh, taking a very dangerous turn under your leadership, to be honest with you. Dangerous. It's taking a dangerous turn. How is it? What? (laughs) I mean, could you imagine the idea that Bernie has just said he doesn't think that Employers who violate labor law should be given should be rewarded with billions of dollars in taxpayer money. 
And Lindsey Graham says, that's dangerous. Law and order Lindsey Graham says it is dangerous to enforce the law if the law would hurt bosses. If the law would benefit workers, maybe we need to be a little bit more liberal loosey-goosey with enforcement. And, you know, uh, do we really have to enforce the law? Do we do we really need people to, to encourage people to, to follow the law? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. It's dangerous. That's what he says. He says it's dangerous to encourage employers to follow the law. He then went on to say that, look, there's a process here if you have issues. Adam, let's play that. As to the process, there's a process in this country. If you feel like uh, the law has been violated in your efforts to unionize uh, the workforce, you can file a complaint. People will have a hearing. There's a process to debar companies who engage in illegal behavior. There is a process. This is a political process here. That's some, this is a political process. He says that derisively. This U.S. Senate Budget Committee hearing, this is a political process. Yes, like yes, it's a political process. That's what you're a you are a politician. You are a practitioner of politics. What is politics? It is the decision making of how we are to run our society. That that's yes, this is politics. This is politics, and. And it's just amazing because you'll remember that Tuberville said something similar to this mm-hmm. a few months ago at the mine workers hearing, like deriding, deriding the idea of doing politics, D- just deriding the idea because they think that they think that politics is just is just lying about gay folks and trans folks. That's the idea, and he ended. Graham ended his remarks by veering into he gets he's not he's not super close to it but he 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 dips his toes in the water in, in the well that he's been going back to so often that earned him so much credit from the Kavanaugh hearings where he became a mini celebrity on the right wing for yelling at people um and 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 he he dipped his toes back into that well uh raging raging at the behest of the poor executives at Amazon, the poor executives, and saying what uh, what they would do if they got the committee back. This is very dangerous. You can have oversight hearings all you like, but you have determined Amazon is a piece of crap company. That's your political bias. They're subject to the laws of the United States. They shouldn't be subject to this. If we get the committee back, we're not going to do this. So there you go. Uh, and I, I believe him. When, I believe if, it, I believe if or probably when they get the committee back, no, they will not do any oversight of corporate America. So uh, in that case, he's actually telling the truth for a change. Yep, yep, yep. So um, that's Republicans will not be shining a light on employer misconduct. Chris Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, um has his remarks immediately after Lindsey Graham, and he just absolutely, he absolutely schools him. Let's play that. Thank you for having me. Um, well, first of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. Um, first off, you know, you're, it sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this, these companies operate. And if we're not protected, 
and if the process for when we hold these companies accountable is not working for us, then that's not what, that's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers who make these companies go. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, in the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that behalf. And you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, he further details how Graham's idolization of the process that exists is utterly insufficient. We're not going to play that clip um, now because we're running out of time. Maybe we'll insert it in in the YouTube. Um, but he details extensively places where Amazon has violated the law and two years and years, two, three years later, there is still no resolution. There is still no resolution. The process that is set out for workers to remedy violations of the law by their bosses is utterly insufficient. Insufficient. And people like Lindsey Graham think that's okay. People like Lindsey Graham think that in fact... The law is too much on the side of the workers, which is absurd. Absolutely absurd. Not to be outdone by Lindsey Graham, though, Democrat Tim Kaine had to come in and white knight for Amazon against the scary workers, too. Thank you, Senator Kaine. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to all of you. Um, very, very interesting testimony. I sat at a hearing, Mr. Chair, I think about two weeks ago here, that maybe I'm not fit for this line of work because I was, I was born with a a paint box that has no broad brushes in it. And so, I mean, I'm going to, I'll start with you, Mr. President. Um, I don't challenge some of the facts that my, uh, my chairman laid out or, or that you've laid out. And I think some compelling stories, but I don't think Amazon is a organized criminal syndicate. It definitely is um, the way they treat their workers, sir, with all yeah, due respect. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that that's your opinion and you are as sincere in stating that as I am in saying that I think that's a, a vast overstatement. Um, Amazon employs a million Americans. Not everybody hates their jobs at Amazon. Tens of th thousands of them work in Virginia. Not everybody hates their job at Amazon. Amazon's going to open a huge headquarters in Northern Virginia that was going to have 25,000 employees, but after New York said, we don't want you, it's going to be 35,000 employees in Northern Virginia. And Virginians are very excited about it. It's in probably the, the bluest part of Virginia. And the I'm going to stop Tim Kaine right there since we're running out of time. And I wanted yeah. to make sure we have time to do a couple of plugs here at the end. Uh, but definitely stay tuned for overtime. We're going to dive in a little bit more there about that congressional hearing. And while we're wrapping up here on the radio, uh, one plug I did want to give. There is going to be a rally in March, a fight for human rights, bans off our bodies on May 21st. That's Saturday, May 21st, 1 p.m., in Huntsville at Big Spring Park. Yep. Also, early bird registration deadline for Labor Notes conference has passed, but you can still go. The conference is June 17 and 19. Leave us a voicemail. Uh, you can buy our hat or give us some money on our website, tvlr.fm. See you next week. <laughs>